We're looking this morning at the subject of worship from in our text is Exodus 32. The events that happened at the base of the Mount Sinai with regard to the people and their uh, idolatry and worship had to do, uh, humanly speaking, uh, with, number one, an absence of the spiritual leader. And later, or next, we'll talk about a poor spiritual leader. But firstly, I want you to consider, from your bulletin outline, the absence of a spiritual leader. Both of these problems were evident in the idolatry and revelry which occurred here in our text. Moses was absent on this occasion. But notice, not through neglect and not through preoccupation with personal matters, but because clear back in Exodus 20, Moses related the law of law to the people audibly and therefore uh, thereafter was summoned by God uh, to ascend the mountain to receive the law embossed in tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So that's where he's at when our text occurs. Verse 1 tells us that it is the delay, now that's from the people's perspective, the delay of Moses' return that caused them to summon Aaron and say, verse 2, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They don't know what has happened to him. That's what they said. Well, Exodus 24, verse 18 says, And Moses entered into the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is all the time, think about this, a little more than a month, this is all the time it took for the people to grow restless about their situation at the base of the mountain and to forget God's word to them before Moses ascended into the heights, which was, don't make any idols of gold or of silver. Forty days, that's it. Forty days is symbolic of testing. You remember Jesus testing in the wilderness, Matthew 4, lasted 40 days and 40 nights. And so here, Israel was under trial. How so? Well, look at chapter 19. The people were to consecrate themselves for the appearance of God on the mountain. They were to do that two ways. They were to wash their clothes and to abstain from sexual relationships for three days. Limits were to be placed at the base of the mountain to keep the people from touching the mountain. And chapter 20, verse 18 and following says, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. There it is. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. You ever hear that expression? I'm going to put the fear of God in so and so or something like that. Well, here's a test that was to put the fear of God in their hearts. I'm reading on. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. 
And then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Exodus 20, verse 18 through 23. I would say that this was a fearsome, fearsome experience indeed. The writer of Hebrews gives us this commentary. He says of this whole experience, A mountain that is burning with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, a trumpet blast, and such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded, namely, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Hebrews 12, verse 18 through 21. <coughs> Moses, as we read, explained the reason for all this mystifying phenomena, saying, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And in particular, the sin. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. That is, a, as a companion deity. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. But here we are. I mean, just 40 days later, and what are the people doing? They're ready to dump Moses and dump Moses' God by reason of his absence. As for this fellow, Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. Brethren, whenever, whenever people use the generic, the generic noun to describe a person, man, woman, and then when they add the adjective this or that, this man, that woman. When they speak like that, those are expressions of contempt. They have lost faith in Moses. That man, we don't, where's that man? You see? And it has only been 40 days, but they have had it with waiting. And so they press Aaron, Moses' brother, and approved priests. Give them a God that they can see and handle. This is Moses' guy. You know, we, last time we saw him, he went up in the clouds. And, and, and for all we know, he's gone. He's dead. He's, he's disappeared. Forty days. I had a pastor tell me one time, uh, my agreement with the church is that I receive four weeks of vacation per year, but in all my years of ministry, I have never taken off four weeks at one time. So I said to him, well, why not? Surely you could use the rest. Surely that would be a time for you to recruit from the stress of ministry and so on. This, this was his answer. If I took off four weeks at one time, I would have no church when I returned. What was he saying? He was referring to the truth illustrated in our text. 
And in the saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Meaning, when the one in authority is not present to supervise, people discard restraints, they throw caution to the wind, and they do whatever they please. And usually they are, those things they do are disobedient and sinful things. If only they would realize that God is watching even when the pastor is absent. Every pastor that I know of that has said to me uh, about the circumstances of them being voted out of the church, every one of them said something to this effect. It happened when we, are, we were away on vacation. Am I right, guys that are pastors here? It happened when we were away on vacation. Yeah, that's, that's when it happens. And so this is what is going on here. We have an absent T leader through no fault of his own. He's doing what God has instructed him to do. It's going to be... If the, and, and be known it's going to be for the good of the people but you see God's word to Israel had fallen on deaf ears he had warned them do not make any gods to be alongside me that is an, a, a companion deity do not make for yourselves gods of silver and gods of gold so what do they do they convince and I put that in quotes I think they intimidated Aaron Why? Because it says here, all the people gathered around him. How would you like to be Aaron standing there at the bottom of the mountain and have, you you look up and there's these swarms of people coming towards you and then around you. They convinced Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. So the first problem here is the absentee leader. But Again, I say, through no fault of his own. But there's a second problem, perhaps even a worse problem, and that is a poor spiritual leader. In this case, Aaron. Aaron caved under this pressure. He didn't even put up a protest. Instead, he answered, verse 2, Well, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed it to him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, and he fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, that is the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Exodus 32, verses 2 through 4. Listen now to Aaron's rebuttal, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, He built an altar in front of the calf and he announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, to Jehovah. What was he saying? Well, it's something like this. Today I did things your way. I made you a seeable, touchable replica of a deity out of gold. But tomorrow, tomorrow we will have a celebration for the Lord. For Jehovah, that's the word there, Lord. For Israel's true God. By doing this, Aaron capitulated to the whims of the people. And he did the very thing that God forbade. That is, do not make any gods to be alongside me as a companion deity. 
Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Verse 23 of Exodus 20. Well, he made the golden calf as an accommodation to the whims of the people. And it was a companion deity with Jehovah. And it sent the wrong message. Namely, so long as you have proper celebration for Jehovah, you can pretty well have your companion deity. That's the message that was sent out. Brethren, there is so much wrong here, it's hard to know where to begin. But let me make a stab at it. I didn't put these in the bulletin, but you can write them down. Number one, there's a clear violation of God's prohibition. God does not prove of you worshiping other so-called deity so long as you're careful to give him his due. No. Here, let me read it for you. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 through 16. God is not sharing his worship with idols or idol concepts. Again, Aaron was uh, guilty of duplicity. Here's a second sin. I read this text, it's clear. He did not believe, Aaron did not believe in any God but Jehovah. Why then make an idol for the people? What a mixed message to send. Pastors, teachers, elders do not have the luxury of playing both sides of the fence together. Commitment to the God of the Bible demands that sometimes... A line has to be drawn in the sand. Joshua set the pattern for his leadership, saying to Israel, But if everything the Lord seen, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served across the river, that's the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. Make your choice, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 15. And we might read that and say, oh, well, he was giving them a choice, was he? He's saying, you have, you're going to make a choice, but be careful about the choice you make. And as for me, here's what I'm going to do. And here's the epitaph we read in the last chapter of Joshua. 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Sometimes we draw the line in the sand and God honors that. And he did honor it in the case of Joshua. What an epitaph to be written 
on his tombstone the Lord that people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua's leadership. Thirdly, what else was wrong with Aaron's capitulation to the people? Well, there was the real danger of annihilation. God alerted Moses to what was going on at the base of the mountain, and he said, I have seen these people. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. Exodus 32, verse 9 and 10. What? What's going on here? Well, the folly of Aaron's anemic leadership placed the people of Israel on the brink of utter destruction. And had it not been for Moses' intercession, they would have all been destroyed on that day. That's how angry God was with what was going on at the base of the mountain. Then a fourth sin here. Aaron, in his disobedience, added lying to his poor leadership. When Moses questioned him, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such great sin? Aaron answered, do not be angry with me, Lord. Verse 22. Verse 24. They gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. But verse 4 says that Aaron fashioned the calf with a tool and verse 25 gives God's commentary. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock for their enemies. There's God's commentary of Aaron's action. Brethren, compromise of truth does not make you appealing to the world. They can figure out in short order the folly of such capitulation. So I'm saying that if you ever want to pray prayers for me, your pastor, you need to pray for a resolute adherence to the scriptures no matter what. No matter what. Aaron was not an absentee spiritual leader, but he was a poor one. Because right in the midst of the temptation, right in the midst of the trial, he caved by following the whims of the people. And Moses' analysis was this. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Aaron, don't you know your responsibilities? Don't you know that I'm holding you responsible for what the people are doing. You did this. You led them into this great sin. That brings us to the second point in our outline. Worshiping God like the world celebrates its heroes. The summation of this, and we've looked at it, verse 25. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. King James Version says, they saw that the people were naked. It's a Hebrew word that means to be without restraint, which nudists say about clothing. Oh, it's just too too restricted. In our colloquialisms, we say to people, you know, you are so uptight. 
tight. Ooh, you need to let your hair down a little bit. Really? What is that? That's a saying, saying you need to forget about the restraints that you have put on yourself. Godless Sinatra had a song which he called It Was a Very Good Year in which he explored all of the sexual exploits of his life from being a teenager on through his years. And he writes, When I was 21, it was a very good year. It was a very good year for city girls who lived upstairs with all that perfumed hair. And it came undone when I was 21. That's what's going on here at the base of the mountain. Moses' accusation of Aaron, he saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. Now, I can just hear it. We're thinking, well, what could Aaron have done? Think about this. He was outnumbered a million to one. That's pretty accurate, by the way. A million to one. Well, you know, historically it has been proven time again, time and again, that when God's ministers, when his teachers, his prophets, his preachers stand for the truth of Scripture, the God of Scripture stands with them. Micaiah was pressured by the false prophets of Ahab's court to speak a favorable word in the upcoming battle against Aram. And when he did not, he couldn't do it because that would have been lying, Ahab threw... Micaiah the prophet into prison because of the bad report and fed him with a diet of bread and water. But the next day in the battle, guess what? Ahab the king was mortally wounded just as Micaiah had prophesied. It was like God saying, you know, Micaiah was right. You should have listened to him, Ahab. Now you're dead. This happened again when Jeremiah preached that the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent by Babylon. Some officials said, let me read it for you, this, sh- this man should be put to death. They're talking about Jeremiah. This man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things that he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. Jeremiah 38 verse 4. Really? Is that what Jeremiah was doing? He was preaching negativity. Wasn't that, that's for sure. Destruction is coming. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are coming. And guess what, Jerusalem? You aren't going to last against that. So he was saying negative things. But Jeremiah's message included this. Let me read it for you. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians, he's saying surrenders, Whoever surrenders to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. There's the jewel of hope in all of the bad. And they thought such words were treasonous, and so we are told they took Jeremiah and put him into a cistern which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Now he was going to be left there to die of starvation. 
But a man named Ebed-Melech approached the king and he said, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will die of starvation when there's no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men from here, go with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. Jeremiah 38, verse 9 and 10. And Jeremiah was preserved of all places in the courtyard of the guard after he was rescued. So the summation here with regard to the people at Sinai is that the people of Sinai were running wild. They were out of control. And keep in mind, this was their method of worshiping. This is their method of worship, their decorum in worship. Now that's the general summation. What about the details? We'll look at verse 6. They sacrificed to the Lord, followed by eating, drinking, and revelry. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The reference here to burnt offerings and fellowship offerings is directly connected to what Aaron had said. I'm paraphrasing. You know, you have the golden calf that you wanted. But, verse 5, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, to Jehovah. And so the next day they proceeded with those offerings prescribed by the Lord in the law of Moses. And then before the fire of the altar had time to cool, they broke into revelry. Verse 6, it's a Hebrew word meaning laughter, jesting, making sport, playing. Paul in the New Testament gives a more detailed account saying, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. And the Greek word here means to give way to hilarity, especially by joking, singing, and dancing. And dancing is mentioned in our text as well. And so the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, translates 1 Corinthians 10, 7, they rose up to dance. To dance. Can you see what's going on here? In the pagan worship of idols, almost anything goes, and the great sin here is that the Israelites saw no distinction in how they should worship God. Whatever they learned in the 430 years of Egyptian sojourn, they were so ingrained in Egyptian polytheism that they could not separate in their minds the accoutrements of pagan worship and the worship of God, the worship of Jehovah. What do we know about the generation of the Israelites that came out of Egypt in the Exodus? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first as was written. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you Hebrews did in the rebellion 
Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Here is again the idea of trial, 40. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Boy, these, these descriptions are horrific. Rebelled, disobeyed, unbelieving. All signs of infidels, brethren. Hebrews 3, 14 through 19. We in our carnal reasoning might be willing to cut these Israelites a little slack thinking that their years of sojourn in Egypt without proper godly instruction ought to mitigate any judgment from God. The text from 1 Corinthians that we read this morning in the meditation reading states, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, here's the fact, our forefathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. They all, they all, they all, they all tasted, tasted, tasted. These are tremendous spiritual Privileges, But Paul goes on to say, nevertheless, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, the first six verses. Much of their hearts bent on evil things are found right here in our text as they attempted to worship the holy God with profane decorum. They mixed the sacrifices to God with pagan revelry and thought that God would be okay with that. And yet he was not okay with that. He was ready to annihilate them and as we'll see in a minute, took out the lives of 3,000 people on this day. So the first particular here is that they engaged in pagan revelry. Secondly, there is a reference to their singing. After Moses successfully assuaged the anger of God towards Israel so that God relented of the destruction he intended, Moses began his descent down the mountain, verse 15, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved in the tablets. So you can just picture this. Moses is done talking with God. God's done talking with him. And down the mountain he comes. Well, about halfway down the mountain, there, there was Joshua, who went halfway up or so. That was Moses' protege, the man that would take over leading Israel after Moses' death. 
And there was a sound of a stir in the camp, and Joshua surmised, hmm, that, that, it must be the sound of war. Verse 18. Moses, however, knew it to be something else, and so he gave this clarification, verse 18. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear, verse 18. Okay, I got a question for you. <clears throat> My question is this. What kind of singing must this have been to cause Joshua to interpret it as the sound of war in the camp? The Hebrew word here is kol, K-O-L-E. It means a noise of thundering, often associated, get it now, with frivolity or feasting. This was the singing of people engaged in revelry, which they classified as worship of all things. They had sat down to eat, they sat down to drink, but boy, when they got up on their feet, it was party time. And they sang the ruckus songs epitomized by sailors. 99 bottles of beer on the wall. 99 bottles of beer. If one of those bottles should happen to fall. 98 bottles of beer on the wall. 98 That's what was going on. And that's why Joshua sang. Boy, that, that singing sounds like war cries down there. Elder Doug's study in Ecclesiastes brought before us the wisdom of Solomon on some of these matters. Solomon wrote, It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the songs of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter. <laughs> of fools. This too is meaningless. Meaningless. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 2 through 6. That's what was going on at the base of the mountain. These Israelites were having a high old time, rocking with the times, singing, laughing, thundering to the high heavens while sitting on the precipice of the mouth of hell, awaiting their final destiny, which eventually came to their experience as they died in the wilderness. That whole generation. Over a million plus people. Next 40 years. Die off. They brought into their singing, they brought into their worship of God the same cadence, the same rhythm, the same intonations, and beat that they used around the campfires 
where inebriated men speak and sing with no restraint and without propriety of things they should not sing or say. That's what they were doing. You see, brethren, you cannot simply compose theological lyrics, words, to rock and blues or rap music and then call it worship. If it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If it looks like the world, if it sounds like the world, if it has the same effect as the world's music, then it's likely of the world. The Apostle John warns us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. The world has... And it's, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Worshipful decorum will mean that we cannot compose, sing, or play music which says as little and reeks with the same superficial triviality as the rock bands of our culture. Say, well, their, heart, their, their heart's probably right. I can't judge people's hearts. God does that. But you know what? God doesn't tell us to judge people's hearts. It says, by their fruits you will know them. Judge by the actions. Jared has some videos that I've asked him to uh, cue for us. I took these videos right off um, YouTube. You can find them there. The videos I chose were from guys that profess to be Calvinists. This is the new Calvinists. You could go and find lots of the similar things in Arminian churches that we'll, we're going to look at here in a second. But I chose the Calvinists because they're supposed to be in our camp or we're supposed to be in their camp. We're supposed to be on the same page, preaching the same gospel, loving the same God, worshiping him. But wow, wow, what a difference, as we'll see. Jared, do you have that? Almost. Okay. One is from the church in Seattle by Mark Driscoll. The other one is the church in Minnesota, uh, Bethlehem Baptist. I should have given you a little more lead time.
the sound.
Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we now steady and rest our hearts on you. And in the quietness of this moment, I ask for your help. Not just for me, but for all of us. So that the glories that we have just sung would become the savor of our lives. And that I might speak faithfully from your word. And that you would speak through me and do the remaining work that needs to be done tonight that can only be done through your word now that has begun through these songs. Don't leave us to ourselves. Work now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. What people think is that anything goes as long as you tack God words onto it or you preach a sermon at the end of it. The fact that you can flash on big screens the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus or sing a song, Holy, Holy, Holy is our God doesn't make the service honoring to Jesus or depiction of holiness. This song service goes on for one hour and ten minutes before the speaker comes on to speak. The rock culture is part of the contemporary music scene in the church. I think God needs to forgive us. And he also needs to change us. Paul says to God's true people, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Second Corinthians 6, verse 16 and following. What about the people at the base of the mountain? Zinging, revelry, drunkenness, all that going on. Verse 28. That day, about 3,000 of the people died. How did they die? God, strike them with a lightning bolt. Let me read it for you. God called, or Moses called for those who would stand with God, and the Levites responded. And Moses said to them, You have been set apart today. To the Lord, for you were against your own uh, sons and brothers, and He has blessed you this day, because the Levites stood with God. If 
you look at the close of the chapter, verse 35, 3,000 died on the spot here, but more, more died by plagues that God brought upon Israel for this very incident, Exodus 32. And Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians. Thousands died. We need to be careful that when we say we're worshiping God, we have a proper and holy decorum. We can sing praise songs, our different words and so forth in the hymns out of our hymn book, but we have to do it in a reverential and godly way. And the content of our message cannot be superficial, chit-chat like you would find in a rock song. I'm concerned about the new Calvinists. Because they're entering and entering worldliness into the church in the name of the doctrines of grace. And like I said, we, you can go on the internet and you can find all kinds of churches that you wouldn't agree with theologically and you might say, hmm, that, that's why the, their worship sounds the way it, it sounds. But when we find people that take our uh, identity spiritually and it's the same thing, as what's going on in the other churches. Then the world has come in. We haven't changed the world. The world has corrupted us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this text in Exodus 32. We know that when Israel went into the promised land, you said to them, do not worship me in the way the pagans worship their God. But here we are, 21st century, and it looks like we're doing that very thing. Oh yeah, the Jesus words are sprinkled in the lyrics. But the revelry is there. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that. We are to be salt and light to the world. We are not to be mimics of the world. We are to be a counterculture, completely counterculture to what we find in the world. And only by your Holy Spirit will that ever, ever be possible. Lord, bring to our churches this day repentance. Bring to our churches discernment that it might be a return to the glory of our God as we find in the scriptures. We ask this for your glory, yes, but also for our good because... What does the New Testament say? It says judgment begins with the house of God and if it begins with us and if the righteous are scarcely saved, whoa, what will it be like for sinners and the ungodly? We ask your help in this whole matter in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for being patient. Hello. Technical.